And if I have to describe in words what is happening in Gaza, I think what we're seeing is the most televised and visually documented coverage of genocidal policies in history. And uh, as forensic architecture, as with our other you know, colleagues, we're looking for ways that the methods that we have available to us can be used to document and push back against the playing out of these policies. Hello, and welcome back to the ARPSIS podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, we speak to Forensic Architecture. Forensic Architecture is a research agency based at Goldsmiths University of London, investigating human rights violations, including violence committed by states, police forces, militaries, and corporations. Forensic architecture works in partnership with institutions across civil society, from grassroots activists to legal teams to international NGOs and media organisations, to carry out investigations with and on behalf of communities and individuals affected by conflict, police brutality, border regimes and environmental violence. We bring you this special episode to launch season five of the podcast to talk about the absolutely horrific events that have unfolded within Gaza and Israel over the last month and the incredible work that forensic architecture are doing to uncover the truth and halt misinformation. I'm not going to say much more, let's just get straight into it. Well, thank you so much for coming, and it's just fantastic to have you on the ARPSIS podcast. Just so the listeners know, we're not using your name, but we'll refer to you as the Forensic Architecture Researcher for this um, interview. And I was hoping, um, obviously, we're going to focus more on, on the work that Forensic Architecture does in Palestine and Israel, but I was wondering if you could start by just telling us very briefly the kind of scope of work that Forensic Architecture does around the world. Yeah, sure. So Forensic Architecture is a research group based in London out of the Goldsmiths University. And we are, um, you know, imagine a group of interdisciplinary researchers, people who come from different trades, lawyers, architects, designers, developers, sometimes environmental scientists and fluid dynamics experts, scholars, Um, working on many moments on single investigations. And what sets FA's work apart is that we conduct spatial and visual investigations, largely of state, corporate and environmental violence around the world. Now, our uh, work started in Palestine over a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And We always say that what we learned in Palestine, we were able to apply to other contexts of state and corporate violence. Um, But this is is really our bread and butter. We deal with a lot of visual evidences. We reconstruct scenes. And over the past 10 years, we've developed our practice, which uses a lot of methods from a distance, Mm. you know, whether it's remote sensing, satellite analysis, video analysis, open source tools. We refined our method to be much more uh, community-engaged, community-based, taking the direction from people who are directly affected, working with civil society groups on the ground mm-hmm. as collaborators, equal collaborators. And this has also changed the intensity and the meaning and the impact of our investigations. Yes. Thank you so much. And I really have always been such a big fan of Forensic Architecture's work. 
and um, the kind of thoroughness of evidence-based research, which I think has such a huge impact. We're going to go on to talk a bit about some of your the, you know, the methodology of your work and some of the kind of key investigations you've done. But I was hoping, and I know this is a very hard question, if you could just maybe give us a brief context of what is happening in Gaza right now. It's been a month of the kind of siege of Gaza. 10,000 people have died. Could you, as, a, as an expert in the field, just give us a very brief kind of context of, of what is happening and why? So what's happening in Gaza is um, a, a heightened, um, much more damaging, multifaceted, hyper-militarized version of what has been happening and destructive version of what has been happening in Gaza for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the siege in Gaza, many people say, you know, has been going on for the past what, 17 years since Hamas was democratically elected by the Palestinian people in 2006. But really, it started in the 90s, the siege in Gaza, the slow suffocation of Gaza, flattening of its terrain. And um, for the past month, since October 7th, a number of uh, resistance factions in Gaza um, broke through the multi-layered Israeli surveillance and military infrastructure that Mm -hmm. has suffocated the Strip and its two million people for uh, decades. Um, They uh, broke through, went to villages um, in 1948, Palestine or Israel proper, entered around 22 Israeli settlements that stand on those villages. And what we saw were a number of um, violent and fatal clashes. Mm -hmm. This uh, then has been culminating over the past month in the form of probably the most damaging Israeli bombardment in Gaza in history, if we can even say say it like this. Now, I've been in Gaza for two of the around half a dozen major incursions in Gaza, dozens of daily incursions uh, over the past 30 years. And what we are seeing in this moment is something that is so enraging, so disturbing, so upsetting, the widespread targeting of civilians in hospitals, in schools, in mosques, in their homes. We are losing people we know dear and and have worked with, collaborated with dearly journalists. Um, We have colleagues who are missing, uh, also journalists, human rights workers. Um, I mean, in the past 48 hours alone, Israel targeted five hospitals, um, including the solar panels on the top of Shifa Hospital, Mm. um, which were used to bring electricity and energy (laughs) uh, to a besieged strip. And if I have to describe in words what is happening in Gaza, I think what we're seeing is the most televised and visually documented coverage of genocidal policies in history. Yeah. We have obviously had genocides in our very disturbing history in the past in the world, but I think never this televised. Yes. Um, and that's also important for our work at Forensic Architecture because we work with visual evidence. The uh, numbers are staggering, but if I tell you that you know 10,000 Palestinians have been killed in these bombings, 4,000 of whom are just children, we're not even counting the people under rubbles mm. and um, who have yet to be documented. And it's not only the number of people who have been murdered, it's also the slow 
collective punishment of a population, breaking people's basic defense systems, making it impossible almost to access water and mm. food on a daily basis. I mean, this is what I'm hearing from colleagues and friends in Gaza. Yeah. We don't have bread. We don't have electricity. We can't access water. So on the on a daily, people are running just for the basics to take care of their families. Mm. So this is what's unfolding in Gaza at the moment. Uh, highly televised, highly visibilized, slow, excruciating, devastating, and as forensic architecture, as with our other you know, colleagues, we're looking for ways that the methods that we have available to us can be used to document and push back against um, the playing out of these policies. Yes. And not so long ago, I think on the 20th of October, you released preliminary analysis um, onto the bombing of Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza on the 17th of October, which... Um, got a lot of attention for its devastation, of course, but also this kind of um, two narratives that were coming out where uh, Israel said that they were not the ones to bomb the hospital. They released uh, footage of, you know, we, I think we've all seen of the rocket backfiring and we saw the US, the UK governments all side with Israel, among many other countries. You released a preliminary analysis that cast doubt on this evidence and made you introduce your own preliminary analysis and actually the New York Times a few I think last week or the week before released their own investigation that said that that very famous shot that was being shared on social media was also not uh, was two miles away could you talk maybe a little bit about about that preliminary analysis that you um, released yeah I mean until the fragments um, the issue of course with with the bombings in Gaza is that Israel controls in large part access to information. Um, it can turn, it turns off the networks in Gaza, which makes it impossible for people to access visual evidences. Yeah. And frankly, until fragments from the, the blast are analyzed, it's um, extremely difficult to determine what has happened. And yeah. we've been saying this and others have been saying the same, but what our findings, our analysis of, the available evidence showed is that the claims of the Israeli occupation forces, the Israeli authorities, is um, extremely misleading. And yeah. this is part of the problem in documenting an, uh, a devastating onslaught like this, is that we don't have access to information and the evidence that we're seeing that is being released by the state of Israel is often misleading, mm. uh, incomplete, um, uh, censored, limited. I mean, we have a number of cases we've worked on in the past where we've seen evidence being um, doctored yeah. uh, by the state that it's presented. Um, we analyzed the recording, the audio recording. Our colleagues at Earshot did this, um, that they had released by two, um, what the state of Israel claims to be uh, Hamas operatives or, or um, uh, Palestinian fighters admitting to it, which Earshot showed had been um, uh, uh, manipulated. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that it necessarily falsified, but what it means is that that caveat um, that it has been, you know, somehow edited or touched needs to be included in coverage yeah. of, of these evidences. Um, so it's, it's, 
the importance of, of forensic techniques comes in here because we are dealing not only with the closure of access to information, but the information that is being released by official channels is misleading or incomplete. Yeah. And um, that makes the need, really the need for accurate and um, accurate forensic findings that are verified by more than one source mm. of more than one layer of evidence. Yeah. Uh, so much more necessary, so much more necessary. We don't have uh, UN access to Gaza at the moment, only those who are stuck in the besieged and bombed strip. You don't have human rights actors yeah. giving access. War correspondents are not able to enter Gaza. So we're really relying on what civilians are documenting themselves, sharing themselves posting themselves and trying to find ways um, to verify uh, events um, using uh, different layers and sources of um, techniques. Yeah. And I think it really, that kind of, the work that you do, I think it speaks to what's so important about your work. And as you were speaking, it reminded me of your incredibly important investigation into the, into the death of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. And I'll definitely share a link to to all your investigations in this episode because you can see when you watch the video on your website of how important these kind of all connecting all the different parts of evidence are into retelling a story. Um, Shireen was killed in Janine in the West Bank on the 11th of May 2022. She was a journalist and after her death there was uh, international outcry. And at first, the Israeli Defense Force said that it wasn't them who did it. But your evidence proves by using all of these different forms of evidence that not only was it um, Israel that killed Shireen, but also the person who shot her could have clearly seen her press uh, uniform when he did it. Could you tell us a little bit about that investigation and all those different elements that you used to kind of come up with the results? Shireen's case was one that my colleagues led okay. in our um, organization. But the question around Shireen was, was a lot of what is the source, which is always where we arrive here. What is the source? Who who did the killing? Mm. Was it the resistance fighters? Was it the state of Israel? You know, in many ways, the structure of the argument around Al-Ahli and Shireen are, are very similar yeah. um, uh, and uh, need to be also debunked. Um, even commentators who at the time said, okay, it was the Israeli occupation forces that shot, question of intentionality came up. Well, maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe mm. it was meant elsewhere. And that's where findings of forensic architecture were extremely relevant because we were able to show intentionality. Mm. Um, one of the techniques that a colleague of ours um, sort of spearheaded in the office was one, doing a visibility analysis, which basically showed, of course, that the press gear was immediately visible, to the Israeli sharpshooter or marksman, mm. marksperson, but that when Shirin was in the line of visibility, she was shot. So it's once seen, they're shot, being shot largely over the shoulder. And when other civilians came to aid her, when they came in the line of visibility of the sharpshooter, they were also targeted. Mm. Um, so what, it, all of these things, along with the other layers of uh, evidence that we presented, show an intentionality. And that's extremely significant. Yeah. Um, that project, what stands out with that project also is that it was a collaboration that Forensic Architecture had with our office in Ramallah at Al-Haq, mm -hmm. the oldest uh, human rights organization uh, in Palestine. It's a legal center. And um, 
with Palestinians also co-leading this this investigation with us, we were able to access data on the ground, you know, spoke directly with Shireen's family, who many people at Al-Haq knew also personally, and um, were able to visit the site on a number of occasions um, to support our 3D modeling of um, the tree, of the of the road, of the camp, or the area adjacent to the camp. And we conducted a situated testimony with um, Shada, who's one of the journalists, young journalists, who was with Shirin at the time, mm. um, which also added not only a human texture, but dimension to um, support our findings. So it's this mix between doing research from a distance and in very close proximity that gave an added depth um, to our project, our investigation as a whole, but also that allowed us to come up with the, frankly, um, damning findings yeah. that we uh, were in that project. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think I think what's also so interesting about your work is that there's this this relationship between things that are like at this moment, very moment, which where things are happening very visibly, things are, you know, the whole world is watching. And then other components of occupation, which are so, you know, are basically invisible or overlooked. So I'm just thinking about um, two of your re- investigations you did, one into the uncovering of mass graves in Tantura from 1948, and also the herbicidal warfare used by Israel into Gaza, I'm just wondering how how you even go about discovering those kind of investigations. I mean, the herbicidal warfare was basically the use of of wind to attack Gaza. Can you tell us a bit about how you, first of all, find these investigations and how you develop them? A lot of the investigations are brought to us by people Mm -hmm. on the ground, sometimes family members, organizations, communities directly affected. Others are uh, brought to us through our own experiences, our own lived experiences. I've worked in Palestine for 20 years Mm -hmm. um, and I have had the privilege of traveling and working with besieged Palestinians, Palestinians under occupation in all four corners of the country. Herbicidal warfare started from looking at the disappearing trees in Gaza, Mm -hmm. that Gaza, a place historically known for its orange trees, is now less and less seeing trees. And in fact, in the ongoing war that we're you know, witnessing televised now, the trees, the agricultural spaces are the first spaces that are flattened yeah. and targeted in a strip that depends on those spaces for its food security. Yeah. When looking at the trees, you know, it brought me immediately to the eastern periphery of Gaza, the so-called border of Gaza, um, which then brought in the question of, well, why is this land flattened? Where did mm. What happened to the trees? And then you realize that there's a systematic effort for 30 years to flatten uh, that terrain, the, yeah. to the point where you can see it from space over time using satellite images, that border um, being uh, burned and flattened and constantly maintained, yeah. engineered in this way. Um, and herbicidal warfare is one of the techniques that is used. Now, what's interesting about that is that the sovereignty of the border itself, right? So often we think of the border as dividing two sovereign mm. areas or two actors in this case, because of course Gaza is not sovereign. Israel is an, has the responsibilities of an occupying power over, mm. over Gaza, according to international law also. But in this sense, in this case, Israel uh, argued, the Ministry of Defense argued officially in court and in our Freedom of Information requests that 
they are not spraying inside of the Gaza Strip. They're spraying only on the peri- perimeter. Mm. But the issue, of course, is that they spray only when the wind goes into Gaza, yeah. which means that they cannot then control where the poisons land. And they had three poisons, oxyfluorofenduron and glyphosate, mm-hmm. that they were spraying. Um, they also cannot determine the concentrations based on the wind, based on where the wind carries it. And so that study was significant because it was we were able to show conclusively that in, in the case of Khan Yunus, each spray has a different signature. But in the case of Khan Yunus, we analyzed, it was going up to 350 meters inside of the occupied Gaza Strip and at concentrations that are higher than what the EU uh, says are safe concentrations. Yeah. So we were able to verify that actually it goes into Gaza, the damage is on the Gazan mm-hmm. side. Um, but that project showed a slow violence, a slow and yeah. invisible violence. And it showed that as much as the the land is being, tar- people are being targeted, the land is also being targeted. Yeah. A way of targeting a population is targeting uh, their relationship with their terrain and creating new landscapes. Tantura um, is the latest project that we launched in May on the 75th anniversary of the occupation and depopulation of the village and of the Nakba. And Tantura is probably the most relevant project to what's under, to understanding what's happening in Gaza today and mm. in Palestine in general today. The techniques and tactics of displacement, of flattening that we saw in Tantura, gathering people en masse, um, systematically targeting people, uh, not distinguishing between combatant and civilian, the traumas that it has created over 75 years of generations, and also in the case of Tantura, the censorship, the yeah. suppression of data, the targeting of those who speak out and who document. We're seeing this happening all over the world in Western universities and in media spaces, but also inside of uh, inside Israel mm. proper. And what Tantura, what we were able to do in Tantura was revisit those historical crimes, speaking to living survivors, one in particular who lives in Germany now with whom I actually spoke to a few days ago, who's appalled at what's happening in Gaza. For him, this is a repeat of what he went through in Tantura in 1948. But we were able to listen to the voices of refugees that had been documented, whether it's people who are refugees in Syria or in Jordan or living abroad in exile, and use their voices, use their memories to give dimension to aerial images. Aerial images that are almost impossible to get from the Israeli state, that take a lot of time, Mm. but that we were, through the generosity of researchers and colleagues and filmmakers, able to access. And in doing that, in... Um, you know, our director says we were listening with our eyes or looking with our ears, mm. you know, in, the, in listening to what people were saying, we were able to find a second mass grave, yeah. a second mass grave that hadn't been documented, that hadn't been located, that Palestinians, of course, knew already, um, but that had very significantly the exact same signature as the first mass grave that was known, which mm. means that that's a pattern, that's a way that bodies were disposed of. And that's really the the way that we work. You know, you yeah. look at an incident, you see if that incident is repeated. And when it's repeated, it becomes part of your method. So the next village that we're going to look at, and we will look at another village mm. and the executions and mass, mass killings and the mass graves that are in that village from 1948, that's the first thing that I'm looking for, right? Yeah. I'm looking for an open field because I know that's a signature. Mm. It, this is the same way that forensic architecture learns from what's happening in Gaza. We know how the previous wars played out. Yeah. We know how institutions are targeted. And so we know what to look for when we're analyzing these visual data. 
But the two projects that you point to are significant because they point to you know, what is often called slow violence and fast violence. Mm. And they also point to the historical legacies of these violences. You know, yeah. we cannot understand what's happening in Gaza today without understanding what happened in Tantura in yeah. 1948. And the way that that original violence has been hyper-militarized and is now assuming hyper-surveilled mm. forms. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, resulting in a hyper-destruction as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's so important, especially at this time when so many different facts are being pushed out. Everyone has very, very different times and it's it's really polarised. Um, I wanted to kind of end by just reflecting on the response that you get to your work. I was actually listening yesterday to a, a really fantastic um, speech by the director of Forensic Architecture, E.L. Wiseman, um, in Berlin last year. And it was kind of eerie because he was he was talking about anti-Semitism and he was talking about how the occupation is really affecting and making vulnerable Jewish and Palestinian communities all over the world. And he kind of foresees what's coming. And I think now we're really seeing that play out. And I was just wondering when you release your investigations, when you release evidence, which is so clearly based on on research all to do with evidence as we were just talking about what are some of the reactions that you get from governments from organizations from people how does it play out in once you've released it into the world yeah, i mean it depends very much on the project the findings and the context right some governments don't acknowledge the findings because mm. it isn't whether they're liberal democratic or apartheid or settler colonial governments whatever they are this is across the board many yeah. governments don't even acknowledge the findings often until it's mobilized and activated by civil society mm -hmm. who then push the findings forward and demand it um, we've had moments when we've had when we've received official responses from state actors from families and the communities that we work with, those are those are really our constituents. They are the people with whom we work and whom we are uh, working on behalf of. Mm -hmm. um, so it's so their reaction to it, the lessons that we learn from it, their mobilizing of the findings is really what is more significant to us. We don't usually yeah. present findings directly addressing governments. We don't work with state agencies. Yeah. And so I think we see ourselves more as part of an ecosystem where we, when we develop the findings, we rely on actors on the ground with longer histories of engagement to then activate them and mobilize them. Mm. We've had moments when, of course, our work has been presented in the International Criminal Court, in domestic courts. And we've had moments... Um, I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't call it success because it's not successful when you're documenting human lives being yes. what is success in the context of state and corporate violence. Mm. Um, but moments when the, our findings have resulted in policy changes, um, in amendments, mm. uh, in increased visibility, making it difficult for states to um, continue violence in that way. Um, but what we're also seeing is that it's not enough to mobilize one forum alone. Yeah. You cannot you know, produce findings that are only presented in the courtroom because mm. that, that's you're within the domain of the state and you're using the language of the state. You also cannot only use it to present it in museum spaces, which we mobilize and gallery spaces, which we mobilize as political spaces for yes. us um, or in university spaces. You need multiple fora. And so approaching our work with public programs has always been very effective where mm. you launch a project you, of course, you have a, local actors who take it to court or present it in the media, 
um, in your mainstream press, but you also have a sustained public program of panels, talks, workshops, masterclasses, and so on that allow the project to live the day after the launch. Yeah. And those are the most fulfilling, the most effective community building, uh, empowering uh, parts of our projects. Mm. Uh, also, you know, very difficult because you're dealing with people who are undergoing the very violences and trusting you yeah. to document those violences. Um, but those are the responses that we're that we're getting. I mean, if anything, we're seeing that this this technique of visual investigations is catching on. You have the International Criminal Court, you know, accepting these types of evidences. You have domestic courts accepting visual investigations as evidences. You have a visual investigations unit at the New York Times, the Washington Post, yeah. I think also the Foreign uh, Times, um, Financial Times, sorry, that is um, developing their, you know, their new unit. So, um, you know, non-university actors are including forensic analyses as part of their, um, you know, daily production yeah. and daily methods. So there is something to be said for this yeah. uh, approach. I think everybody's realizing that the crimes of today and the crimes of tomorrow are increasingly uh, also visual and mm. spatial yeah. and building on these methods um, is part and parcel of resisting that yeah. violence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been, um, it's been such a pleasure to hear you speak. I know you're incredibly busy, so I really, really appreciate it. Um, and yeah. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's increasingly difficult to find spaces where you can talk about uh, investigating state and corporate violence in Palestine. So I really yeah. I appreciate the space that you're uh, giving us. And um, yeah, as much as we are working around the clock, we're also all directly affected by what yes. is happening. Um, I think this mix of personal and political and professional engagement um, is one that we're all constantly trying to navigate in yeah. this period. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you for the the time and space. No, honestly, it it means so much and I really am your biggest fan. So (laughs) it's a real honour. We'd like to thank Forensic Architecture for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about their work or anything that's been discussed in this episode, please find links in the description. If you're new to the podcast, why not go back and listen to some other episodes with art activists such as Casey Wong, the theatre group of Freedom Theatre, the Fearless Collective, Khaled Albay and so many more incredible artists. We'd like to also thank Ziad Hisham for all his help with this week's episode. We really appreciate it. And thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>